0: You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported.
1: Community Radio for South Central Indiana.
2: Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones.
3: And I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, April 14th, 2022.
2: Later in the program, we have Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers' Coalition in light of the latest strike on campus. More in the bottom half of our program.
3: Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration with Medicare for All Indiana. Today, our host welcome guest, Fran Quigley, a clinical professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law. But first, your local headlines.
2: On March 31st, at the Monroe County Board of Health meeting, public health nurse Amy Meek gave an update on COVID-19 vaccinations.
0: Well, good evening. Um, I just wanted to give you a quick update for the public health clinic. Um, First of all, the 50-plus extra dose for COVID has rolled out, and we're seeing an increase in uh, vaccine appointments now at the clinic. Starting April 1st, instead of going to rshot.in.gov to schedule online, uh, customers can just call the office and schedule like they would any other vaccine. And that's how we plan on things
3: kind of rolling out unless something changes. Uh, from here on out, COVID vaccines will just be given at the same time as they're given with any other vaccine.
2: Executive Director of Indiana Recovery Alliance, Nicholas Voiles gave an update on the program's work in the community. This
1: last year alone, we have over 2,400 reversals of fatal overdoses from our Narcan to peer-to-peer reversals. We have put Narcan in as many places as we can. There are now eight Nalox boxes that I got and helped uh, uh, Danielle put into Crawford House. There'll be more put in of Flats. So as much as we can saturate this town with Naloxone to save lives is what I'm planning to do. Um, we uh, just got an a bunch of new staff. So when I came in, I just, you know, I needed help. It wasn't something I could run on my own. So we hired some development staff and some outreach workers. We now have two outreach workers who are going out three afternoons a week to the camps, to Kinser Flats, until we can get something more stable out. And in any place we see any need, they are, for the most part, not distributing syringes. They're distributing like aid, you know, wound care, naloxone, you know, stuff like that. Uh, Mostly as much long so as we can pump into this community, uh, we have seen a huge rise, a huge rise in people in our. Uh, we used to have about two to three thousand a year. We now have five thousand encounters a year of people coming in and needing help of some form or another. We have referred hundreds to treatment. We started a new pilot program where we get people with HCV or HIV into rapid care if positive <laughs> blank. So when they come in, we'll you know they'll ask about it or they'll have had a test. We send them to a dedicated person who will soon be on-site in our building, and they run them through a real quick cascade of care, which is where we lose most uh, unhoused people and people in chaotic use. They can't make the different meetings or something happens, so we're shorting shorting that with telehealth and with an on-site nurse that'll be there a couple hours each day. We get a bigger need, we'll keep her longer, but we're just going to see how it plays out. Uh, We're starting a COVID vaccination hesitancy Uh, We got a grant to like see why are people not taking these vaccines? Is it feasible? Is what they're is what they're thinking right or is it wrong? How can we debunk these myths that folks think? You know, one person told me Jesus told them not to take it. One person told me that he's scared it's gonna turn him into a chimera. You know, another person. So how do we physically, you know, how do we actually debunk these myths for these people? Well, for me, it always worked with science and fact, you know, so that's what we're gonna do. Um, we're starting this program as of next month where we'll be going in and taking, you know, surveys. We'll probably survey everybody who comes to the IRA and then we'll disseminate those with focus groups and try to key into some of the population so that we can then debunk all of these, you know, and, and get people vaccinated if they need it and start to push this, you know, we're not going to give them, we want you to take it or don't want you to take it. We want you to have the facts so you can make the decision for your own, not based on some something you created or something that might not be...
2: Board member Carol Tolukian commented on what Indiana Recovery Alliance is able to do for Monroe County.
4: I know what you're doing is really important in terms of, of the harm reduction part of it. Um, I, I just am a little concerned about, you know, one of the biggest parts, if we can get people to, you know, to, to recover, that's good. I'm just concerned about what's available in the community. And that, that's a, I think that's such a huge piece of what you can offer.
2: Voyles responded saying that she is right, that there is a need for more services to be available.
1: Uh, yeah, so we offer a, a non-biased harm reduction uh, support group every Sunday night that has no uh, no 12 steps. You know, people have a hard time with 12 steps sometimes. and So it just is just aid and support. There is no no, no 12 steps, no guidelines. It is just coming in and supporting. You know what I mean? And it's been the change for a lot of people. But we need more. Right. Yeah, but there are a thousand things I'd love to do for this community. We definitely have a huge need, um, and thus probably needing a bigger place, bigger, more money to hire better staff. You know, pretty soon we am getting ready to hire a syringe service manager, which will lift me out of doing both jobs. You know, uh, I, I was uh, do I've been doing both jobs until now. So hopefully that'll free me up to do more stuff as well. You're right. There's, you're right. There's, it's, we are desperately always in need of more services.
2: The next Board of Health meeting will be held on May 5th.
3: Now it's time for Strike Mike, voices from the Indiana Graduate Workers Coalition in light of the latest strike on campus. We turn now to that segment.
5: first day of pickets, April 14th, kicked off with strong showings of hundreds of people at multiple locations across IU campus. Picket groups converged at points ranging from sample gates at the western edge of campus to the School of Ed in the east. Professors, organizers, poets, and musicians contributed with words and songs, while at other points, sound systems blared labor movement classics and pop hits. Undergrads streamed out of Ballantyne Hall at noon, For the walkout and a roving bicycle picket spread awareness across campus. Base camps, established by organizers under portable awnings, distributed information, water, and snacks to participants and passers-by. We spoke to protesters at the pickets and at the walkout.
4: Yeah, there was amazing turnout here at the pickets today. Um, The students, we saw a lot of solidarity even from passing students uh, as we were flyering. Many of them were already aware of our, our, of our uh, strike and supportive. Uh, we had numerous chants, you could hear them across campus, uh, marches together, and it was just really great to see how many people turned out. Uh, and you know, traveling around campus, there wasn't a lot of student or faculty activity in the morning. Uh, It was rather sparse, but at the same time you could definitely spot these very large groups of people at each of the strike locations. It was just a disproportionate number of people that were there on campus to support the strike and the picket.
3: I'm here because River and I, we work in um, the Scenic Shop with the theater department and all of our supervisors are um, graduate students. So we see them every day and um, they were like talking to us and basically They only get a little bit of money, and because they're in the theater department, they're not allowed to get another contract with anywhere, so they're not allowed to get a second job. So they have to go off what they have. And recently, um, one of them got hurt, so she can't even work right now because she's injured. Um, And it's just like we see them every day, and they teach us, and how are we supposed to have a good education if our teachers can barely eat? I'm here because I think the way that IU treats its workers, all workers, undergraduate and especially grad students, is egregious. Um, But also I'm not surprised. IU kind of always over their students, um, and especially workers and like low income people. I think that it's also very sinister that they're trying to divide undergraduates and graduates when we're all students and we all go through some of the very similar struggles. So I'm here in solidarity because the the fight that the grad workers are undertaking is the same fight that undergraduate workers um, should also be taking, and so I think they're kind of paving the way for future workers um, and students like myself uh, to have a living wage and not have to live in the way that they have been because IU clearly doesn't care about us.
6: Yeah. So when we came into this Ballantyne courtyard, we saw that the whole space was filled with young folks, uh, presumably undergrads who had walked out of classes in this building and other buildings around here. And we were greeted with an energy that was elevated and infectious. And you could see it ripple through the crowd as, as, as one mass joined another, and, and, and the power and the resolve of those folks doubled you you could see it and and you and you could feel the energy and you can hear it now. It it hasn't resided, and and you could see even as people were, were leaving because they had to go to whatever was next, they were leaving excited. They were they were carrying their picket sign. They were they were holding it up to people as they were walking out, saying, "Look what I'm a part of. Look what you get a chance to be a part of, and what you are called to be a part of." And and I think that was something incredibly powerful about, particularly what a lot of the the undergrad speakers lifted up was was the intersections that 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 are that that we organize along. Um, so knowing that the graduate. Workers, both as students and as workers, and as teachers, and as comrades, and as siblings, all all of those things. We all have a place of commonality with them. And we also all have a vested interest in not only their freedom and and liberation, but that ours is inextricably tied to that. And I think that was another thing that not only were people excited, it wasn't just a pep rally, but it was it was you could tell that folks were. Committed folks were. It was. It was clear that they were tied to this struggle and to the people standing next to them, um, and that's something I always love to see. Is just the people who talk to each other. Like you, you end up walking next to someone. You're like, oh, hey, how would you get here? You're like, well, I heard that freedom fighting folk were getting together, and I just had to come. And 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 then I just. I don't know. I love all of those beautiful collisions, and this was a space that was facilitated in a way that not only made those collisions possible, but made them. Uh, not not profitable but but fruitful um, where where they are their are relationships that are being built for the long haul knowing that not only this particular struggle in this particular moment for this union is a long-haul struggle like it's not just today but knowing that it's it's the beginning it's the beginning and it's also I think one of the things I really love is seeing young leaders in graduate workers inspiring and and walking alongside young leaders in undergrads so folks who just got to this campus and I remember when I got to this campus five years ago and i heard about the graduate workers and i said who like those are my folks those are those are people that are fighting and you know what like those are the people that are teaching my classes like and and i think that was something really cool that like i got to experience that five years ago where i wouldn't be the organizer i am today without having met the graduate workers and being able to be in spaces where we formed those close relationships um and now getting to see that on a scale larger than i've ever seen before in these last 5 years organizing alongside them like this is this is the I don't know. This is so incredibly beautiful. And and I think of all these people who are walking away with what I got to walk away with five years ago. And I get to think about the incredible organizers that they're going to be in these next five years and how much trouble not only this university, but this state in this nation, how much trouble they're in. Because how many of these young folks are not only seeing the political possibilities within their immediate lifetimes like within this decade they recognize that we are in a reconstructive era that we are in a shake-up moment and that they have a place in it and 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 that they they can be not only leaders but they can be learners they uh i, I organized with the national union of the homeless and one of the things we say is learn as we lead teach as we fight and and that is something that really resonated with me today is learn as we lead teach as we fight because we see Those, I mean, a lot of these folks have sat in classrooms where maybe there was this divide of who was teaching, who was learning. But in this space, it's just this amalgamation of of knowledge and power being shared in mutuality consistently in every one of those collisions. Like, ah! it's, it's beautiful. It's inspiring. I'm energized. I'll be on this picket line every day this week. And I, I know that I'll be seeing a lot of these faces again and again, um, throughout the, the decade to come. Uh, and, and I am, I'm resolved. I, I am, I'm feeling beautiful and powerful today. And I know everyone else here is too.
4: Yeah. So my name is, uh, Jackson Bell. Um, I'm a sophomore here at IU and I'm an undergrad, um, who's been helping out with the, uh, the strike so far. Um, we just had the walk out, uh, for the undergrads and it was crazy to see so many people here, uh, probably like several hundred undergrads came out. They walked out of their classes. They showed a lot of strength and a lot of solidarity with their, uh, their grad student, um, their grad student coworkers, their teachers. Um, and I'm really proud of, uh, this community and uh, I'm excited for the, uh, the rest of the strike. I, I think that, uh, you know, we're getting, we're building more and more momentum, and I'm getting more and more confident that um, the strike is going to end up with a with a really positive outcome, and I'm I'm really thankful for everybody.
3: with the apologizing descendants of their executioners. This is the year that those who swim the borders under tow and shiver in boxcars are greeted with trumpets and drums at the first railroad crossing on the other side. This is the year that the hands pulling tomatoes from the vine uproot the deed to the earth that sprouts the vine, the hands
5: Strike organizers say that pickets will continue tomorrow, Friday, April 18th, and Monday, April 16th, and are likely to continue past that, pending a strike reauthorization vote on Monday evening.
2: Up next, we have Prescription for Healthcare, a monthly podcast collaboration with Medicare for All Indiana. Today, our hosts welcome guest Fran Quigley, a clinical professor at the Indiana University McKinney School of Law. We turn to host Karen Greenstone for more.
0: From Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare on WFHB Community Radio, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana. I'm Karen Greenstone, along with Dr. Rob Stone. Hello. Our guest today is Fran Quigley, who is a clinical professor at the Indiana University McKinney School of Law, teaching in health and human rights clinic. His students advocate for the rights of the poor with a focus on individual and systemic barriers to accessing healthcare and the social determinants of health. His focus shifted from advocating for access to insulin for diabetes during COVID and turned to eviction protection. He's the author of Walking Together, Walking Far, how the US and the African medical school partnership in winning the fight against the HIV AIDS pandemic. He also wrote Religious Socialism, Faith in Action for a Better World. He has also served as the executive director of the ACLU of Indiana, and as a staff attorney with Indiana Legal Services. I would like to add that Rob read Walking Together, Walking Far before volunteering at the medical school in Kenya that you write about. Rand Quigley, welcome to Prescription for Healthcare.
7: Karen and Rob, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Fran, the House of Representatives voted yesterday, March 31st to pass a bill that would cap the cost of life-saving insulin at $35 per month a piece of legislation that would ease the burden on millions of Americans living with the disease who pay out thousands of dollars each year on the drug. For diabetic patients, including children and young adults, out-of-pocket costs for insulin can be a major household expense, whether they are insured, enrolled in Medicare, or uninsured and underinsured. The bill passed with bipartisan support, but sadly, the entire Indiana Republican delegation voted nay. The bill now goes to the Senate. Will you talk about your work advocating for diabetic patients and for lowering insulin costs?
7: Sure, Karen. I've had the real privilege of being a follower as more than a leader on this, but following the folks who are living with diabetes, in particular type one diabetes. There's a great organization called T1 International which is, uh, as, as the name would suggest, folks who are living with type 1 diabetes, which I'm sure probably Rob's talked about on the show before, and probably a lot of listeners know those are folks who are insulin. is not a discretionary thing. It is what uh, keeps them alive every single day. It's a little bit different than type 2, which can be that or not. And these folks have been activists for quite some time, but we got to know because of geography, because I'm in Indianapolis, and uh, one of the three manufacturers of insulin in the world that really have cornered the market globally is Eli Lilly and Company. And insulin has this amazing origin story, which for those of us who care about healthcare as a human right, is really exciting. It was discovered in 1922. It was, it was literally a lifesaver for, for millions and millions of people. And the inventors sold the patent for $1. And when they were asked, they got the Nobel Prize for this, but they didn't refuse to monetize it. And they asked why they said, because insulin doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the world. This is Dr. Frederick Banting. So we're just right now in the hundred year anniversary. but that patent ended up getting in the hands of companies, uh, unfortunately, like our Indiana company, Eli Lilly and Company, and they have taken what a vial of insulin costs about $5 to manufacture. It's a formula that's been around for decades, and that vial can cost as much as $300. And uh, as as you mentioned, Karen, this is something that that is literally killing people. Um, and killing people here, even in, in the wealthy United States, is definitely killing people globally because they can't afford this medicine that is... Been around for a long time. That is designed to save lives, and that is actually cheap to manufacture and distribute. So the folks with t One International and other folks with Type One Diabetes and, and allies have held a series of actions directed to and in front of Eli Lilly and Company here in Indianapolis. It's been a privilege to be in coalition with them and in partnership with them. And I know you all have been up there for for those as well. I have to say, just like you, Karen and Rob, I've been to many demonstrations over the years, but I'm not sure I've ever been to one more powerful. Than when parents talk about having lost their young adult children because those children were having to ration their insulin because they couldn't afford it. And of course, it dovetails with what you all do every day with your activism. This is all about the fact that uh, they've aged out of their parents' health insurance programs and working full-time for the most part, but just don't have access to good insurance and or care. And uh, unfortunately, that's caused many deaths. And Fran, have you do you feel like you have personally in any way, Gotten feedback from Eli Lilly, or has it made it harder for you to work in Indianapolis because of your activism and the public stance you have taken? I actually delivered a paper on nationalizing the pharmaceutical industry, I've taken it all the way to 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 11, right? In Uh our law school faculty lounge, which is the Eli Lilly and Company faculty lounge, where if you looked out a certain window, you could see the the headquarters of the company. one of these or one of the parents who stayed in our home who'd lost her son, Nicole Smith Holtz, has become a really globally recognized activist on this because her son Alec died at age 25 in the Minneapolis area because he couldn't afford insulin, even though he's working full-time and otherwise was healthy but had type one. When we met with a vice president, sheep, we attended a shareholder meeting. It's a long story how we got in there, but we attended a shareholder meeting with our insulin for all our insulin's a human rights t-shirts, and ended up meeting with the vice president of Eli Lilly this is what this town is like. And you all understand that the vice president's children had gone to school and played on the same soccer teams and track teams as my kids. Wow. And so to answer your question, I think it's actually not been harder because it, it's been a little bit of a healthy way for me to be an activist because you know, lawyers in particular, we're pretty adversarial folks. That's what our business is for a lot of us in litigation anyway. So it's easy to demonize the human beings on the other side. So, a lot of people, I'd say most people went to Eli Lilly that I know of thinking, oh, I'm going to be a part of healing. I'm going to be a part of discovering new medicines and, and making people's lives better. And then many of them become very disillusioned to find that it's much more about profiteering. It's much more about getting monopolies and charging whatever the market will bear. So it's led to a lot of really healthy, productive conversations. But it also makes me be careful. Whenever I teach a class and we talk about these things, I have in that class, at least a couple of students who either work at Lele Lilly right now or their parents did. And you just, you find yourself having to be pretty careful and fact-based, but unfortunately the facts are, are very clear here. It's not been, I, I give great credit to IU as we speak, as it's being recorded, they haven't fired me yet. So uh, even though they're, they're constantly trying to raise money from Eli Lilly, they haven't yet to, whether I, whether someone's asked for me to be fired, I don't know, but so far so good.
0: Yeah. So I'm going to pivot just a little bit here and what current talk about what your current w- work is, but mental health and safety of your clients at the law school during a worldwide pandemic must have been traumatic and overwhelming. Will you tell us about your work protecting renters and homeowners from eviction during COVID?
7: Well, as you mentioned, our clinic's name is Health and Human Rights, and so we have been focused over the years on access to health care through, again, just standing by and being in just amazing support of what, what you all have done it to preserve, and well, you all, to create the fact that we have Medicaid expansion in Indiana, even as a red state, just so much credit to the two of you in particular, but others as well, but also to preserve the Healthy Indiana Plan and that in line with the name of the clinic is. But what we found out, of course, housing is such a key social determinant of health. And we're in an era where, where folks are being thrown out of their homes at this historic rate and can't afford their, their homes. And what we've realized is what lawyers and law students could really probably do best to help was to go to the eviction courts. And so we've been in the eviction courts for about a year now and trying to defend folks and and keep them in their homes and to push when when the conditions are very poor, which unfortunately that's pretty commonly the case. And so that's been a that's been a roller coaster ride. We talked before we hit record that Rob's longtime ER doc experience. I I feel like resonating with because a lot of this is we just seem to be ping ponging from one crisis to the other uh, literally in the course of I don't know an hour or two. But I do think it's something. It's been very fulfilling for the students and very fulfilling for me because we do have some victories and we do oftentimes just getting folks a little bit of time for they can figure out another place to be and to gather some of the money to capture up the back rent, we've been able to be a, a little bit of help. So that's been a privilege and we're glad to be able to do it.
0: So Fran, what's your prescription for healthcare?
7: I'm going to give you a really controversial take on this particular show. It's Medicare for all. That's the prescription <laughs> for healthcare. Health, you look at the polls and, and you talk to folks and, and as you've done a little bit of research and advocacy on faith community involvement in advocacy for healthcare. we think healthcare is a human right. We just do. You you talk to almost anyone from any kind of background and tradition, and we believe that healthcare is a human right, but we don't treat it that way. We treat it as you get this if you can afford to pay enough money to make a corporation extra revenue so that they can enrich their already rich shareholders. And this is what we do with the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry, and unfortunately, the, the, the direct healthcare industry too often as well, is we've commodified a human right. And Medicare for All at the core is treating it as an entitlement that every single human being is entitled to have the insulin that they need, entitled to be able to go get the care they need and get the tests that they need and, and be able to see the physician and, and their care provider when they need to. That's the prescription for healthcare. Is it's a, Unfortunately, it's a political prescription, right? We, we need to do much, much better in Washington and and in the state house and in our, our city councils, et cetera, to make sure that the politics and the profiteering stop getting in the way of this human right.
0: Well, Fran, thank you so much for talking with us today on Prescription for Health Care. Karen and Rob, this is
7: wonderful. I appreciate the chance to, to see you and be with you again and to have this conversation. I look forward to to being with the folks in Bloomington and beyond for more activism soon enough.
0: <laughs> so, this is Karen Greenstone and Dr. Rob Stone for Prescription for Healthcare, sponsored by Medicare for All Indiana on WFHB Community Radio. To your good health, everyone, the pandemic is not over.